0: this is the current federal tax developments for the week of january the 3rd 2022 current federal tax developments are brought to you by kaplan financial education and by your state society of cpas i'm Ed Zollers, we're going to be taking a look this week at a few things that have happened as we closed out 2021 and are now moving into the brand new year of 2022 so what happened this week was first We're going to talk about the issue that the IRS very quietly revised the revised IDA relief that they had just issued that we discussed last week to quietly remove what had been kind of an odd thing that was included in the relief. And we'll discuss what that means and what's going to happen if taxpayers who knew about the original publication, and I'll show you where to find the original of the website, managed to follow that having been told this is how it works and then suddenly get notices from the irs when the irs now says oh no that's not how it works it also greatly illustrates the big problem we've been talking about for quite a while about the irs publishing guidance on their website which can change with no or very little notice and this particular change came up with no notice whatsoever from the irs at least as of the time this was recorded We'll also talk about a case where Reagan-era regulations on conservation easements have been held to be invalid by the 11th Circuit. So these go back to 1983, uh, before I think some of the people listening to this were born, before when maybe a lot weren't born. And we're going to now, they invalidate that, which has an impact on this issue of the traditional extinguishment clause and what has to be in your conservation easement to have it be valid to be considered valid we've had a lot of challenges on this recently the taxpayers have lost at the tax court but this was the case of now taking this to the 11th circuit where the 11th circuit has reversed we'll talk about what that means if you're not in the 11th circuit and also what the 11th circuit covers as well as some other cases that continue to be litigated and we may hear more about. We are going to also talk about a chief counsel advice the IRS released this week, where they objected to the use of a dated, shall we say somewhat dated, seven-month-old valuation, the dated back seven months earlier, that a taxpayer is attempting to use to justify the funding and the payout numbers for a grant or retained annuity trust a GRAT, we'll talk about why the irs believes that that was an invalid valuation for these purposes uh, and why the irs therefore believes that the entire grant has failed and we'll talk about what that means if the irs happens to be correct on that view we'll also talk about a taxpayer who unfortunately uh, ha- managed to fail in The taxpayer's attempt to assure that he didn't have to pay more interest while he was challenging the IRS's attempt to assess trust fund recovery penalties against him, while in fact already been assessed, he was now going through collection due process to try to get rid of it. We'll discover how his attempt to put a deposit down and why he might have wanted to do so ended up causing him to lose any chance to challenge the IRS's action in the tax court. So we'll talk about how that went. And finally, though this may not be timely unless you're listening to this by the end of the day on Monday and preferably a little before that if you have to do this, we'll talk about a rapidly approaching deadline for taxpayers to pay over any amounts they had deferred under the CARES Act for for the employer portion of FICA, the one half of that, or one half of self-employment tax after the March 12th date. That payment is due on Monday, January 3rd, and so we'll talk about that and also remind you of the IRS that told us were the consequences of being laid, at least on the employer payment. As I said, welcome to 2022. Hey, we're going to go one more time, try to see what happens, go through the year. So we get to restart this year. We'll see if we actually get a regular tax season ends the unextended tax season ends in april since that hasn't happened the last two years and you know we'll, we'll see if this year we manage to make that or not but in any event we do have the brand new year uh meaning that yeah tax planning basically done now for 21 again there are very few things that can be done at this point aside from funding certain retirement programs that's about it that we have at this point but we're getting all ready for the brand new approaching tax season and filing those 2021 returns but in the interim we still have some people who are having to deal with 2020 returns that were affected the returns were on extension and they were affected by hurricane ida and the grant of relief as well as just those who were in those areas and had estimated tax payments coming due for the third and fourth quarter of 21. You may remember we discussed er, last week that the IRS had put a on their website this state this basically this notice that you'll see if you're looking at the screen version the. Uh, basically not the audio only but the video version as well the IRS put on their website a notice that talked about hurricane ida tax relief granted to february 15th for all are part of six qualifying states it was posted to their website on the 20th uh, the version we talked about last week i had retrieved on the 24th of december so this was a christmas eve version and what's interesting is that the IRS very quietly, as you'll notice on the screen, it says now updated, say it was December 22nd, original posting, it says updated December the 30th. And all we knew, the IRS has made no announcements that I have found anywhere about the change that was made here. But it is an issue we discussed last week, so I want to discuss it this week. Now, if you go there, you're going to read the notice as it's now been revised but using the wayback machine and for those who aren't aware it archives things the internet archives wayback machine archives web pages if i go back to the wayback machine i'm actually they have snapshots they've gotten of this page multiple times and the last one before the december 30 posting was posted on december the 29th And that posting in the sentence in the paragraph that is key. This paragraph will go from one sentence to two. The paragraph originally said the February 15th estimate extended deadline also applies to quarterly estimated income tax payments that were due on September 15th, 2021 and January 18th, 2022. Now, that February 15th extended deadline was when they pushed back the deadline For taking certain actions making certain payments uh, and filing returns uh, that were essentially due from the date that hurricane ida emergency started until the date of january 3rd to january 3rd now hurricane ida relief generally basically everywhere that's covered in this notice and there are different dates provided as if you're looking at the screen you could see those dates but between August 26 and September 1st is the start of these periods where we get the relief. That means any extended return, whether it was a pass-through or it was a regular old, you know, 1040, 1120, that were due on September 15th, the extension for the pass-throughs, or on October 15th, the extension for the individual returns and the C-corporation returns, those all got pushed back to january 3rd as we discussed last week that was a problem because january 3rd is smack in the middle of the irs's shutdown for the electronic filing systems both for individuals and for entities so we had this pushback but we then had this weird uh, paragraph that goes on after telling us the extended deadline would cover now two of the estimates because now they're both in the covered period We also have a sentence that said this means that taxpayers in these areas can now skip making their estimated tax payments for both the third and fourth quarter of 2021 and instead include them when they file their 2021 return. Now, reading that sentence as plain English sentence, right? It tells me first skip those payments. Okay, I'll skip those payments. And then... Just include them when i file my 2021 return now by my math that 2021 return is going to be due on april the 18th assuming we don't get it pushed back again so the reasonable reading of that was don't send in third and fourth quarter estimates if you're in those areas so you don't have to and you can then turn around and pay that estimate you know pay those missing to with your Form 1040 that you file on April this eighteenth. And presumably if you were a C Corp, uh, you know, we got to see how that would go, but probably quarterly payments that were due by the C Corp that have slightly different dates, but apparently would those be extended? Not clear, but okay. But what the IRS did was very quietly on Thursday, they updated the page. And the updated page now has totally deleted the sentence that said you can skip the payments and send the money in with your 21 return that quietly disappeared in the version that's up there for September for December 30th and the version that as a record this is on the IRS website now again there was no mention made about the fact that this disappeared or that they took it off the page it just went off the page now what does this mean Well, you know, officially, I'm sure the IRS will say try to say that anything on their web page is non-binding. But in this case, that might be a little more troublesome because this is a 7508A relief. And we've been beating that up for a couple of years. But that relief, if the Secretary of Treasury announces it, that actually allows them to push the dates back. And it is clearly within the IRS's authority or Treasury's authority to push the date back from february 4th from basically from those estimate dates of september 15th and april and basically february 15th to grant relief to have those paid by april 15th or april 18th in this case so apparently and this is how we've gotten all of that relief Now, if the IRS position is that they can change anything on this page at any time and you can't rely on it, then officially, you know, it would seem like they could just come on the page and say, hey, you know, that whole Hurricane Ida relief. Ah, We were just kidding, you know, and get everybody with failure to file penalties. I don't think they can go that far. But it is a problem. And many people had noticed that that was a weird sentence anyway, including why was that pushed back? We speculated it might have been due to concerns about the vouchers getting misposted, to the fact that you'd file returns and they'd cross in the mail. Lots of reasons people decided it might, you know, have been the reason why the IRS wanted to push back. But now it's missing. Now, obviously, if your client doesn't ever get the word and they had read this, saw it in a paper, saw it somewhere, just skip those payments, and they pay at April 18th. my guess is you would argue for reasonable cause, and you want to get that copy from the Wayback Machine if you didn't make a copy of your own of that page. You want to go back to the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. Just search for it in Google. You want to go to the page the IRS has this on because you need to get that URL. Give it to the Wayback Machine, and it will show you all the copies it has. Go get the snapshot taken on December 29th and now you have your copy of what was on the IRS website on december 29th and you would argue that's what your client relied upon but this gets to our more general problem with why we do not like the irs publishing this guidance on the web page the problem is it can change without notice and this is a perfect example of a change without notice maybe it was a mistake maybe they didn't mean it You know, I don't know why, I don't know how it got there because it was a little weird. And I'm not sure, therefore, you know, if it was intended, if somebody thought that's what they wanted to do. But in any event, it was there and taxpayers relied on that just like they're relying on everything else on that page right now. Now, this is just not an acceptable situation to have the service make these changes. And especially not you know this sort of retroactive change my own position on this one is i think the smart thing for the service to do is to own this issue and to say yes we will respect anyone who didn't pay it in we will automatically grant that relief we will not bill anybody and in fact we'll even refund for people in the affected areas any 2210 2220 20 20 penalties that are put on the return just computed by software in those areas, right? We'll just make that happen. Because this just you know otherwise the iris is telling me that I can't pay attention to anything on this screen because none of this has gone through the internal revenue bulletin. So none of it has been anywhere the iris would claim is binding. Longer term, I really think the service has got to be clearer and be much quicker about understanding they can't just make changes to these faqs or these other payments these news releases these web pages without make it very clear to everybody a we're changing this and b what's going to be the impact of the change you know in this case if a taxpayer doesn't get the memo and doesn't understand that even though they went to the page they read this they saw it sorry we were just kidding you know if if that's what we're going to be doing then the irs needs to just stop putting any of this stuff on their web pages right stop putting any sort of stuff like this on the web pages run everything through the irb and be formal but don't go through this routine unfortunately i doubt the service is going to follow that i expect they will continue doing things this way i would warn your clients who may be affected and who might have been made aware of this delayed estimate payment that, hey, it looks like that's not going to happen. It looks like the IRS will want you to make these estimate payments on February 15th, and you might want to do so to avoid potential correspondence. So we go. Okay, let's go to our first case this week. This is a case of Hewitt versus Commissioner, case number 20-13700. It came from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The opinion was published on December the 29th. Now, this involves a contribution of a conservation easement, something that Congress allowed back in the early 1980s. And normally you cannot get a deduction, charitable contribution deduction, for granting a partial interest in an asset. There are a couple of statutory exceptions to this. Uh, The charitable remainder trusts are one obvious statutory exception to this rule. The other key exception to this rule is the qualified conservation easements, where you grant a charity an easement on the property in perpetuity. And if you do so and you meet all the requirements, the value of that easement is allowed as a charitable contribution. However, the question is this in perpetuity, because a problem which was recognized in the law And which was recognized in the regulations is what happens if so I've granted this easement in perpetuity to the charity. But now suddenly, you know, the city comes by and says, I don't care about your easement. We're you know, we're going to knock over this whole area and run a freeway through it. So we're acquiring all this property and they buy all the property and extinguish extinguish the easement. So they acquire the easement as well. So now we have a problem. Well, in the regulations, the IRS provides that if there is a judicial extinguishment, that essentially whatever your ratio was of the overall value of the property and the value of the easement, that you have to divide the funds that way. Now, the catch is, well, what if, though, after the time that we gave that to the charity, we had then put significant improvements on the property? So there is a building there, right? There are buildings, there are big improvements, expensive improvements that have been made to the property since the date that we granted the easement. Can we in any way, shape or form, you know, are, you know are, are, are they going to essentially, the charity is going to get a percentage of the value of those improvements, even though they weren't there when the easement was granted and had they been there, the percentage of the total value of the property that would have been considered part of the easement would have arguably been much lower well the irs regulations you know essentially have said no and they actually made that clear in the regs that that you couldn't you couldn't take care of it that way and in this case their easement had provided for such had provided for a carve out related to the improvements and the taxpayer IRS raised the question on exam. Taxpayers said, yep, we have that in there. IRS said, well, your easement is therefore, you know, not valid because it doesn't preserve the rights in perpetuity in line with the regulations, therefore denying the deduction entirely. Now, this issue was not that there actually had been a condemnation of the property and a you know loss of the easement by the charity. The question was if, however unlikely, that situation ever occurred, was the charity protected? And if they aren't, the IRS rule was, and the tax court backed them up on this, and in fact, has backed up on a couple of cases already that had previously been handled in this area, Oakmark being a major one. The IRS had, you know, said, the tax court said, sorry, your deduction is gone because you have to maintain only that ratio if this happens anytime in the future so as i said it was the issue of improvements added to the property after the donation and then a later judicially imposed you know essentially surrender of the property and the easement you know involuntarily surrendered situation that we have because you know with imminent domain etc this can happen Now, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had actually dealt with a case that was in this area before, in fact, not very long before. That was a case of TOT Property Holdings LLC versus Commissioner. Now, in that case, the taxpayer merely said the IRS had misinterpreted their own regulation. The 11th Circuit said, nope, the IRS had not misinterpreted their own regulation. Therefore, you know, they they lost the case and they lost their deduction. But in this case, the taxpayer came in and they were still going to try to argue that other one, misinterpreting, but that one wasn't going anywhere. But they were also arguing and arguing for the tax court that the IRS had violated the Administrative Procedures Act when these regulations were adopted. Now the APA has certain requirements the IRS must fulfill when issuing regulations you know in order in order for them to be a valid process and the taxpayer argued that the irs had failed uh, to follow the apa specifically the taxpayer argued that there were a series of number of shall we say comments lots of comments over as i recall the uh, case tells us there were over 700 pages of comments that included from number of entities And 13 of the comments they received specifically dealt with this improvement and judicial extinguishment problem and how the regs dealt with it. And the court was especially interested, the 11th Circuit was, in comments received by the New York Landmarks Conservancy, which had a long discussion about how this could be contrary to the Congress's intent to encourage these contributions to be made and how, therefore, the regulation should be changed. Now, when the IRS issued the final regs, they very, very dismissively dealt with all the comments. Just said, all comments have been considered. None are deemed relevant. Right. Now, at the time, they tried to argue as well, this substitution service was taken, that these sorts of interpretive regulations did not have the same, or there was a difference between interpretive regs, legislative regs, and that the apa worked differently in both cases now as we all know going back to the mayo case the supreme court told us a few years back that that whole legislative versus interpretive difference is not a difference all regulations are legislative and therefore as well apa law developed and it made it clear that nope there there was no special rule that would have exempted this type of regulation from the apa's requirements so now the question becomes did the irs follow those rules and the court found that you know the new york landmark conservancy and a couple of other commenters had given detailed specific objections and specific reasons about why this regulation failed to achieve congress's intent and the 11th circuit ruled that the irs is bound under the administrative procedures act to specifically respond with a with reasoning about why they do not accept what the commenter stated if they're going to reject it and keep the reg as is or you know incorporate somehow make changes that they will that they will show in, incorporate these comments and take care of any issues they found the IRS did nothing except essentially say we've considered all comments the 11th Circuit found that that was totally inadequate You know, the IRS said, well, the comments weren't detailed enough. And they agreed that if the comments just basically I hate the law. Yeah, Congress, IRS didn't really have to respond to that. But they said, you know, this particular set of comments by this organization, the New York Landmarks Conservancy, they were very detailed, very specific and very much went into linking it up to the law, to specific congressional statements, statements made by various, uh, you know, committees, the committee reports when this was passed through. And the IRS had a duty to deal with that, and they hadn't. Now, there was a second issue which the uh, taxpayers raised, which is that the regulations as written were an unreasonable interpretation of the statute. So even had the IRS followed the APA and given their reasoning, these regulations would have failed. The court did not go and decide that. Generally, courts don't like to decide more than they have to. And in this case, if the IRS didn't follow procedures, that made the Reagan valid. So this case was basically reversed and remanded back to the tax court uh, to deal with the situation. Because they're saying nope, you can't deny it for that reason. So go back and deal with all the other parts of this case and you know come back and you know tell us how it goes. Now the question becomes: what does this mean? Well, There is a catch, as they pointed out. If you take a look, it should be Oakbrook is actually the case. In the Oakbrook case, uh, you know, which is 154 TC, I guess, 224 is where you're going to find these things that talk about Oakbrook, how this is a valid law. how this reg was valid. The tax court had ruled it was a valid reg. It didn't violate the Administrative Procedures Act. Now, the key thing to remember about Oakbrook is it is a published tax court decision so now we get into the golson rule at least for a while the golson rule talks about what would be the impact of this now we have a standing tax court published decision published decisions are considered to be binding on the tax court in all future cases that present the same facts so every easement that has this carve out for improvements in theory the tax court will always rule that those carve outs are you know mean you didn't have a qualified conservation easement period the deduction is disallowed however under the Golson rule they have been overridden on that holding in the 11th circuit so what that means is for taxpayers whose cases would go to the 11th circuit and the 11th circuit covers alabama florida and georgia in those states the tax court would now rule that the you know they're not going to rule an easement is invalid solely because of an improvements clause that is of the same nature as the clause we have here in essence they can't rule an easement invalid based upon this part of the regulations that's no longer open to the tax court however the tax court only applies that in the circuit that issued the contrary ruling unless the tax court decides to reverse their own precedent and of course they haven't had a chance to do that yet they haven't announced they're not going to follow oakmark so for the moment this means that if you have one of these easements and you're in the three states covered by the 11th circuit your client is then great you're in good shape if you're in all the rest of the country uh, your client's still exposed if these terms are in the conservation easement. That also means if your client is looking to make an easement contribution, you may want to have a long discussion about whether or not it is worth taking the risk to include such a clause, hoping that the, that other circuits will follow suit in the 11th, or if you don't want to do that. Or maybe if you want to do the improvements first, you know all the major improvements you expect to make And then turn around and make your contribution so the ratio will be a little different. Again, there are various ways you can look at that. Or do you just want to wait on the whole thing until we see if we get a ruling in the circuit you're in? Because like I'm in the Ninth Circuit, do we want to wait and see if the Ninth Circuit does something? Now, I have become aware since then that Oakmark is currently before the Sixth Circuit. That was the original case the IRS, that's the original case the tax court ruled that this reg was valid. So that means we should have another circuit opining here shortly on whether this is a valid reg. Now, if the Sixth Circuit says no, then the chances of the tax court backing off begin to grow. Generally, if three circuits go against them and none have gone for them, the tax court tends to reverse their position. So we'll have to see what the Sixth Circuit says in the Oakmark case, which was was the case that started this. But then also see if we see any movement in another circuit uh, where the IRS loses on that. So keep your eye on that. But we have had this Hewitt case is going. If you have clients that are doing conservation easement transactions, you really want to keep your eye on the developments here in this area. Next, the IRS issued a chief counsel advice on the 30th of December. Chief counsel advice 2021-52018 and for those of you who haven't figured this out yet those that 52 in the middle is the 52nd week so this is the last set of 2021 um, chief counsel advices letter rulings technical advice memoranda etc those kind of documents this came out on the 30th now this is a case of a taxpayer trying to set up a grant to retained annuity trust okay now a grant to retained annuity trust is a estate planning concept that tries to fit within an exception provided under section 2702. Section 2702 generally says that if I am creating a trust, right, and it would be for the benefit of a member of my family as a gift, right? The value of the tra- of the assets, the value of the transfer. Right, essentially we'll exclude, we'll treat as valued at zero the value of any retained interest I as the donor have in that trust. So if I retain an interest in the trust, let's say I retain a right in the trust to have income for life, I'm not going to be able to reduce the value of what I'm giving my kid, right, by the portion of that you know of that total trust value that represents my life estate rather that will be treated as zero and it'll be treated as a gift to my kid for the entire balance generally meaning we don't want to see that right in essence now what a grant allows a grant a retained annuity trust follows under the exception that you will find in section 2702 a 2 b Because if you have if you retain what's called a qualified interest, then what you can do with a qualified interest is you're going to be able to uh, count, you know, calculate the value of that interest using the standard IRS discount valuation tables at Section 7502. Now, qualified interest fall into basically three, well, really two categories, but, you know, technically three. One is an interest which consists of the rights to receive fixed amounts payable, not less frequently than annually. So I could have a grant that essentially said, well, you know, I've got to put this, this money, you know, I'm going to put these assets into the trust. But I'm going to retain the right every year, you know, essentially until I die of receiving $20,000 every year. Under the, these rules, we could then discount that $20,000 per year payout, which is a fixed amount. And using the 7502 tables based on my life expectancy and based on the, based on the interest rate inherent in those tables, uh, we're going to divide up the gift between what's my interest in, the, in this based on that payout versus my child's interest, maybe child, grandchild, whatever and what that allows me to do of course is make a discounted gift now the other way we can do that is i could have an interest that consists of the right to receive amounts which are payable not less than annually and are a fixed percentage of the fair value of the property in the trust determined annually so i could just take seven percent eight percent whatsoever of that each year out of the trust and then at my death it passes to my kid you know that that fixed percentage and based on those rates, fine, works great. Okay, and then finally, is any any non-contingent remainder interest, if all the other interest in the trust consists of interest described in the prior two bullets, prior two explanations. So basically, I could also retain a remainder interest in the trust as long as the only other interest I have you know a a non-contingent remainder interest as long as any other interest i have in the trust is only fits one of the first two categories generally when you use an estate planning tool we're using that percentage of fair value calculation so that's kind of how we end up doing this right so that's our payout now this case involves a company and basically the owner and the company had a, has a valuation done every year uh, because they have a 409 cap A non-qualified deferred compensation program that's qualified that under 409 cap A doesn't cause problems. And as part of that, under that plan and how things need to work to make it all work in the plan they have, the company is valued every year. So we have the valuation of the company every year prepared. They pay for valuation every year. Now, one year they came to the end of the year, right? They have the valuation prepared. And around the same time, the owner begins to think that he's wanting to see if maybe they might be able to find an outside buyer who would like to initially buy a minority stake in his company, which is very successful, and then eventually have an option to take over the whole thing. So he makes contact with, you know, some consultants who are going to, you know, kind of look for buyers and pitch this property, pitch this business to to buyers so they're trying to see, is there interest? And it turns out, yeah, there was interest, right? In fact, there was so much interest that he ended up getting a whole series of offers I require. He went out, he found this, they found five companies that all were five investors. We should say investment entities, companies, basically, because it would be a merger. So five companies that were willing to come in and say yeah yeah you know we see that yeah we like it so we would like to buy the interest and then going toward eventually buying the company and so he had like five offers on the table now after that happened so we got five buyers hint if you got five buyers all who are making offers that are way more generous than what you thought the company was worth in December seems like there's a really good chance we're going through right yes one might fall through but all five fall through highly unlikely unless something really weird happened to the company so what ends up happening is after we got that out there we had found the buyers we have this we know we got five very interested buyers he decided to now make a you know form a grant and transfer some of his shares to the grant to retained annuity trust now again And he would get a percentage of value would be paid out every year from the trust. Now, the catch is, of course, that the valuation, you know, the last valuation they had was now seven months old and had been prepared prior to having five buyers out there. But because the operations of the company had not changed substantially, that's the justification the appraiser would give. It was decided they weren't going to go get a new valuation they were going to use that valuation from the prior December okay so that goes on they move forward they end up getting into exclusive negotiations with a buyer right this is moving forward and shortly after that again this all takes place relatively quickly they decide to form a charitable remainder trust now a CRT, as I said, like talking about with the conservation easements, that's another case where I can give a partial interest. And what we usually do with the CRT is I'm going to put this asset in the trust, in the case highly appreciated asset, and the trust can then sell that asset. And because it's considered a charitable entity, it does not recognize the gain at the time it sells it. Now. There then would be a payout to the income beneficiary, which in this case was the donor, right, for a period of time, for life, for a period of years, then go through the details of this exact structure and whether it was a crat or a crut. But in any event pays out over that time frame. And again, we do the discount tables and figure out how much is the value we expect to go to the charity, and he gets a current charitable contribution for that. Now, this valuation was way higher then the valuation at the end of December, right? So we ended up with this CRT and a new valuation that was way higher. And again, when asked to explain, well, why was there a valuation done with the CRT? The, you know, the appraiser pointed out correctly that, well, a to get a deduction for the CRT for the numbers we're talking about here, you need a qualified appraisal. And that qualified appraisal under the rules for qualified appraisals has to be made no less than six months before the transfer is made. So you you have to have that within that time period. So they updated it and they got a valuation. It was essentially worth a lot more. Eventually, the sale goes through. Eventually, the stock sells for way more, including the stock in the CRAT gets converted for way more, you know, in value you know w- way more in payout than the value that was assigned in that december for the 409 cap a plan in fact the following 409 cap a valuation is also way higher and you know and interestingly enough in those valuations they they specifically said there's no anticipated buyers or other you know other situations that that would you know increase the value of this dramatically did point out that wasn't ever said on december 3rd th- on the first one we looked at here that one never had that statement in it now the question is what's the irs position the irs states look generally we don't care about events that occur after the date the gift is given but they said while that truly wouldn't do it what is not true is that that later sale may not give us evidence of value or that later sale may mean there were facts at the date of transfer that a willing buyer, willing seller, would have been aware of had they done their due diligence, and we always assume they do, and they would have done that. If you knew there was a chance the company was going to be you know, basically bought out shortly at a really nice price, would you be willing to pay more, and if you're the seller, would you demand more for the stock? Yes, think about what happens uh on wall street whenever there's some sort of rumor that you know some company is now you know is likely to be acquired you know that tends to bid up the price quickly under this theory that there's going to be an acquisition right the idea being it kicks up immediately because in order to get the buy you've got to bid higher because that higher bid that bids up the value so we would expect that the irs said look there is no way under these facts You knew at the time the grant was funded that you had a extremely high likelihood of closing a sale with at least one of these buyers for a value that was well in excess of what you had valued the company back in December. Right. In the six, in the seven months since you had discovered that this company was worth way more, you know, that there are real buyers out there who wanted to offer as well the iris points out even if that could not have been foreseen the fact that there was a willing buyer under no compulsion to buy who essentially shortly after the gift was willing to pay this huge sum of money that suggests because that's the willing buyer and you're the willing seller that tells us what a willing buyer and willing seller would have paid had we actually had they actually gone and done a real negotiation so i don't care what your valuation methods and your other stuff says a real sale always beats a theoretical sale and in the case of a real sale it turns out that buyers were willing to pay above what mechanically they would computed back in the prior december so saying regardless you should have known this valuation is clearly wrong and because this valuation is wrong you're not really basing your payout on a percentage of fair value of the stock that was contributed you rather are underdoing that you know substantially underpaying which represents effectively a transfer to the uh to the heirs and because you are not following the rules for the crat for the grant i should say you're basically we don't have a grant so back to square one the value of the retained interest is zero the entire value of the stock that was transferred back at that date is considered to be uh, the gift and of course now they're also the IRS is going to go back and say that that's going to be very close to the ultimate sales price so what went wrong here I think one thing that goes wrong is, is it wrong to use that, would have always been wrong to have used that, you know, valuation being done every year. I'm sure clients are tempted. I wouldn't doubt that in the past they may very well have used it. In reality, it would always be better, especially for a significant estate planning transaction, to get a valuation tied specifically to that transaction. But clients tend to balk at that sometimes, and you may be penny wise and pound foolish. If I'm talking about making millions of dollars worth of transfers and, you know, a few million dollars worth of gift tax in play, if we can't defend it, I think it's crazy not to pay for the valuation. But, you know, is it wrong? Well, in an average year maybe you could say yeah we could defend it because every year we get it valued the value of the company doesn't change dramatically because things aren't changing so yeah it's probably okay well except this year you should have realized you were negotiating you had very good reason to expect that you would eventually sell at a much higher price at this point um you should have realized that the irs will know if they do an exam of you by that date they will know if the sale's gone through and that's always bad facts to have that because you don't have good documentation about why there might have been some doubts today all that you're going to invent them all of which sound less reasonable because it turns out none of those things happen uh you know in essence it went through so there wasn't a problem so you know it's a little tougher to sell that it's much easier if we're preparing this at the date of the transfer and the appraiser is actually on record and is outlining realistic issues that need to be resolved before this can be done and then working that in the valuation, which probably no doubt would have been higher than the one at that december but probably would still end up being lower than what the service could end up winning in a case like this right The other problem was you should have realized that CRT valuation was going to come back to haunt you. The problem is you are now going to be on the record with a much higher valuation, right, than what you used for the transfer to the CRAT. To the GRAT, I should say. I always want to say CRAT now. To the GRAT, you know, this alphabet soup of estate planning stuff. And that's a problem, right? In essence, you need to explain why did it suddenly jump in value so greatly from the date you funded the grat until the date you funded the crt why was there this rapid ramp up in value and reality is the court will probably decide it probably wasn't something odd during that short period of time that did it looking at these facts as a whole it seems far more likely that most of that most of that appreciation had occurred well before the grat was funded so there's your problem now. As always, this is just the IRS's memorandum. It is a one-sided document by definition. Uh, but certainly there are concerns here that I suspect, unless the taxpayer and their advisor has some really, really good you know, facts that we don't know about that would override this, it's probably going to be at the best, at least tough, to carry this case. You know, in court and certainly you're going to court and certainly you're not going by, you know, in essence, it's highly unlikely the appellate conferee is going to want to override a memorandum from the chief counsel's office. So you're probably going to have to go at the minimum to the tax court to win this and potentially have to go up into the courts of appeals, etc. assuming you can win. So just be careful. I have no it may very well be that they have done these grants for 20 years and they always just use that december thing and we were on autopilot but sometimes you got to back off autopilot remember not getting a valuation at the transfer date is always suboptimal now maybe suboptimal is acceptable if the risk is low right and what the IRS could win would be minor but you have to recognize that if you're in a change situation the risk is no longer low maybe that suboptimal thing that was fine in prior years and we all know we love sally clients love sally too right same as last year same as last year may not be valid because this year is nothing like last year and that's where you get a problem and as we say in this case if the IRS carries their position which again i'm not also sure court's going to hold that it's entirely invalid you know that that would suggest if you got your valuation off by ten dollars you know, and there, or you got it off so there was a $1 difference in the payout, that that would invalidate the entire grant, I don't think a court would cut it that close. I don't think a court's going to say, yeah, that does it. It doesn't have to be super strict following. It has to be reasonably good following. And again, there may be a question, especially depending on what the court decides this value really was, whether it was reasonably close or not. But again, you know, please remember when reading this, you're only reading the IRS side but it does raise issues you need to be aware of in your situation next up Ahmed versus commissioner this is the case here uh, tax Court random decision 2021 142 this came out December the 28th now this is an interesting case and what's happening here is they're going to try to make a deposit under section 6603 of the code now What a deposit is, is we're not paying the tax. Rather, we are making a deposit slowly with the service. What a deposit does, if you meet the requirements, which are found at 6603, is I put money with the service. That stops the running of interest. However, at any point in time, I can ask the IRS to give me back that money. I don't have to leave it there, right? I'm just going to make my deposit, and that's going to put me in better shape Than if i had paid because if i pay it i'm probably going to lose my ability to raise any to raise any issues in the tax court because there won't be a refund issue in front of the court or there won't be a collection due process issue shall we say in front of the court but also you know it's a lot more expensive generally to litigate in the district courts and go for a claim for refund. You've got to restart the administrative process. You have to go to the district courts, which are a little messier to deal with. They're not tax experts. That makes them a little messier anyway to deal with. So I have this issue. Now, in the case of Ahmed, this involved a trust fund recovery penalty case, right? In essence, trust fund penalty, right? In essence, the employer hadn't paid, the company hadn't paid the payroll tax, Uh, withholdings that were the withholding taxes from the employees Uh, the irs said hey you you're responsible party they came after him for multiple years now a key takeaway on this was 6603 says a taxpayer may make a cash deposit with the secretary which may be used by the secretary to pay any tax imposed under subtitle a or b or chapter 41 42 43 or 44 which has not been assessed at the time of the deposit such deposits shall be made in such manner as the secretary shall prescribe now in this case it's a trp penalty which by the way is technically not covered by any of those sections but the other problem we had was by the time it got here and he tried to make the $625000 payment the tax had already been assessed now, he had been fighting this with the IRS. He got this CDP going, etc. Eventually, though, he didn't get anywhere in appeals. He's got this tax court case going, but he decides he wants to stop the running of the interest. So he tries to, and specifically designate the payment, very clearly designates the payment as a deposit under 6603. The IRS, however, takes that 625, applies it because this would pay off all of the Liabilities that the IRS claims he owes, applies it against all of his outstanding liabilities, and says there's nothing left due, and goes to the tax court and says, Well, you have no jurisdiction any longer. The tax court agreed. The tax court found, Look, the statute's pretty clear. First thing is, this trust fund recovery penalty is not one of the type of taxes that you're allowed to make a deposit on. And secondly, um the deposit rules require the tax not be assessed because this tax was already assessed when you tried to make your deposit and you put in there the total amount you had to pay on the years that were being litigated gang you paid off everything i paid off everything because you had no right to make a deposit so the IRS has a chance to use that however they want they apply it against these taxes your case is gone The only option you have now is to apply for a refund, you know, do a claim for refund with the IRS, go through the administrative process with them, have them disallow it, and after they disallow, then go to the U.S. District Court or Court of Claims. But you've lost your chance to come to the tax court. You know, just the hint here is to be very, very careful and make sure if you're going to deposit route, make sure you've double and triple checked. That you meet all the requirements for a deposit. And that means checking little things like the code that authorizes it and noting that little fact that it has to be a tax that's not yet been assessed. If the tax has been assessed, we can't go the deposit route. Uh, we would have to either pay the tax and then we got to go over and sue in district court. Or if you still want to maintain your tax court collection due process options, you can't actually pay it which means interest would keep running so the choices was have interest keep running or pay it and then go to district court right you know file your claim for refund get it denied file in district court and then litigate over there start over again so be careful here finally the irs reminded everybody and if you're listening to this on monday january 3rd or before uh still got time otherwise well it's kind of over the IRS reminded for employees and for many employers and self-employed people deferred social security tax payments are due on january the 3rd this is IRS news release ir 2021-256 issued on december the 27th and remember the cares act allowed a deferral of the employer fica from that that march 12th date forward which is when we started the The basically the national emergency that we still have under COVID, or one half of the SE tax, and this ran through the end of last year, and again SE tax that related to after that magic date in March. Now this was all well and good. You got to hold that money back. However, you had to pay back half of it. Half of what you had held back had to be paid back by the end of twenty one. Of end of twenty one, one half by the end of twenty two since the end of 21 arrived on saturday january 1st that makes monday january 3rd the actual due date for this first payment and the IRS reminds you that that due date is coming up on monday and this particular news release talks about how you can pay it the various mechanisms how you can pay it electronically how you can use eftps right They even claim you can mail in a check, but they don't really tell you how to do that, which is okay. They do remind you that most taxpayers that did this should have gotten a notice explaining to them the payment that's due and how to make it. But they do note that if you didn't get the notice, that doesn't excuse you. And I want to remind you, we had talked earlier in the year, the IRS's view for the employer one, and I suspect also for SE, is you only are allowed to make this delayed payment if you... Strictly follow the rules for repaying at least half of it by this January 3rd date. If you were a dollar short or a day late, then we go back to hey, you you underpaid your tax back in 2020. That's a late deposit. Uh, may also run interest and other things from that date. In essence, sorry, you blew it. So you want to make very sure your clients did that at that date. If your business deferred and you're listening here and you're saying, I, we did that but i don't remember getting a letter uh yeah you better get it paid by monday that, that that's the bottom line in this case right again the irs took a very hard line position on what happens if you don't get it paid in time well this has been our first current federal tax developments for the new year 2022 happy new year uh we will be back next week we'll take a look see what happens when everybody comes back to town after the new year see if we get anything from there Again, have any questions? Ed Zollers, Currentfield You got questions or comments on the podcast. Uh, I also, as I say, will be watching the boards uh, on Connect for the uh, Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington societies. I will also be, you know, keeping an eye on Idaho's sections to see if anything comes up there. Uh, you can just kind of watch me around. I also am on Twitter. Uh, so I post the updates there, or our website where We post updates; you can watch there. But in any event, hope to see you next week, and uh, we'll see what, if anything, we get in new developments as the year begins and we get ready for a brand new tax season. And you come back next week for more current federal tax developments.